Good morning, everyone. I'm glad you are here. Thank you for uh, choosing and deciding to be here on this Sunday. It's good to see everybody. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad spring is upon us. I'm loving this. thought it was going to be a little warmer out there today than it was, but it's warming up. Uh, our grass is starting to turn green. Flowers are blooming. Masks are coming off. March Madness is in full swing. Uh, but all the while, the world is still focused and deeply concerned about what's happening in Ukraine and Russia. And uh, we're praying for this war to cease and for God to usher in his peace. And we're constantly reminded as we live in this world that we live in the already and the not yet of God's kingdom. All right, there are signposts all around that point to God's good, righteous, and loving rule over all things. And at the same time, there's evidence that God's kingdom is not yet fully revealed. We see sin disrupt longings unmet, relationships ruptured, war waging. And so we come together on Sundays disoriented because we've been living in a world where things are not the way they're supposed to be. And we gather on this day, on the Lord's day in God's presence to be reoriented to the reality of God with us and of God's already and coming kingdom. I don't think there's a greater signpost of God's kingdom than his church, his people gathered in his presence on the Lord's day, in prayer, in song, in word, and in sacrament. For God has promised to be here with us. And then God sends us out every Sunday to live lives pointing to Christ and his kingdom as we embody the life of Christ in our thoughts, words, and deeds in every sphere and location that God has placed us. This is the rhythm of the Christian life. We gather on the Lord's day in his presence as his people and then he sends us out with this promised blessing and then we gather again and then we're sent out and then we're gathered again. And it's our rhythm. And so it's good to be together in the house of the Lord together today. I'm glad you're here. Uh, we are nearing the end of our sermon series in 2 Corinthians. Uh, we have this morning and next week to land the plane for this series that we've titled Power and Weakness. If you've been with us, you've seen throughout this letter, uh, Paul has been letting us in on the secret of life and the heart of the gospel of Christianity, and it's this, that God's power is made manifest through the weakness and suffering of Jesus Christ. Resurrection power comes by way of crucifixion, and this gospel reality is the same for our lives. Life is not about our strength and our ability to accomplish heroic feats. Rather, we are a bunch of cracked pots, as Paul reminds us, uh, jars of clay, who by God's grace he uses in this world as we embrace our weakness, knowing that his power is made perfect in and through our weakness. Last week and this week, we're in a section of 2 Corinthians that feels kind of like a fundraising letter. Uh, last week, Timothy preached on chapter 8, and this morning, I'm preaching on chapter 9. I know two weeks on money, you're like, come on, Daniel. Uh, one week's enough. Two weeks on money, blame Paul. And blame 2 Corinthians, not me. We're just working our way through 2 Corinthians. Fundraising, I know as soon as I say that, everybody in here gets a little tight. Right? We're all strapped in and kind of grinning bared as we talk about money. Money makes us funny, doesn't it? it makes all of us a little bit funny. Uh, when I graduated college in 2000, I, I made the decision that I was not going to go to medical school, which had been my plan for years. Uh, instead, I was going to go do missionary work in Asia. And to do it, I would have to fundraise. And so I sent out this fundraising letter to about 75 people, and I got responses all across the spectrum. One doctor and a wife who I barely knew met with me for three hours because we both realized that we had this great affection and mutual love for Asia. 
Uh, well, the wife got on the phone while I was in their home and, and called 10 friends immediately, asked each of them for $1,000, and she fundraised $10,000 in a matter of five minutes uh, for me to go to, to Asia. On the flip side, one of my good friends uh, growing up my whole life, his parents owned many of the McDonald's restaurants in our hometown, and I was like, surely they will send me to Asia, right? And uh, the dad emailed me back, and, and this is what he said, quote, I cannot believe you're out here begging for money. I was like, Ugh. <laughs> money makes all of us act a little bit funny, right? Well, Jesus talks a lot about money. He talks about more, uh, money more than he does heaven or hell or sex. Yet we all get tight when this topic comes up. Money feels personal. It feels maybe untouchable for many. Let me ask you a question. Do you know how much money someone needs to make in one year to be considered in the richest 1% of the world? $37,000 per year. $37,000 a year puts you in the 1% of the richest in the world. Now think about this, we live in the richest nation in the world in the richest time in history. And one of the funny things is that most of us think we're not rich, but we are. And most of us think we're generous and probably aren't. Just because we're rich doesn't mean we're generous. And generosity is what Paul is writing about in chapters 8 and chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. But let me give you a quick context, a reminder before I read our text. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church who lives in this wealthy, bustling city of Corinth. He's encouraging them to be generous toward the church in Jerusalem who's in great need. And, and he encourages them by pointing the Corinthians to the, the Macedonian church who's this very little in large part, poor church who is extremely generous to the church in Jerusalem. And so last week in Paul's fundraising section of this letter, in chapter 8, Timothy preached on how the heart of generosity flows out of experiencing the grace of God seen in the generosity of God manifested in Jesus Christ. And we saw the great verse, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's a great verse to memorize uh, if, if you would like to store it in your heart. In chapter 9 this morning, we're going to see Paul writing about the how and the why of generosity. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand and we'll give attention to the word of God. In 2 Corinthians 9, we're going to look at verses 6 to 15. This is God's word to us this morning. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written. He is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you, 
because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Lord God, thank you that you speak to us and Lord, we, we are listening and we need to hear from you. So we ask Holy Spirit that you would fall fresh upon the scriptures that we just read, that what Paul wrote thousands of years ago would, would feel like fresh ink because our minds are illumined and our hearts are tilled and, and fertile soil for you to plant your word deep within us so that we might be transformed because you've spoken to us because we've been with you. And so I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing. Speak to us, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, it's, it's widely known in our home, in the Mason house, that dad is the impatient one and mom is the patient one. That might surprise many of you. Uh, probably doesn't surprise any of you. I own it. It's true. Uh, I'm the impatient one. It's also known in our house that dad is not so handy and mom is pretty handy. And if you combine these two traits, when I attempt to be handy around the home, I become impatient pretty quickly. I could give you example after example of when I'm attempting something around our house and I start getting impatient and frustrated and it normally results in me just making things more difficult than they need to be. And then my wife, Rachel, comes over very calmly and patiently and just shows me how easy it is. Just, just do it this way. <laughs> Oh, blessed sanctification of marriage, right? <laughs> uh, being handy, it's not natural for me. And being generous is not natural to any of us. And if I got up this morning and I tried to guilt you into generosity, if I tried to use some trendy slogan to get you to be generous, if I would have hired a motivational speaker to come in here to make us all generous, it would be like me trying to force whatever handy thing I'm doing at our home. I, I might ultimately be able to install those curtain rods at the exact right measurement, but I will probably most likely do some damage to our, our walls along the way. Right? If I were to guilt you or to motivate you in some way, might, you might give of your resources but there will be some damage done along the way. And the reality is that there has been damage. There's been consequence of the way many churches talk about money and generosity. The key to becoming generous is to have our minds and our hearts turned completely around by the gospel of grace. We need a complete reorientation in regards to our own world and life view. And when that happens, what feels unnatural will become natural and easy and even enjoyable, much like the way my wife handles the handy things around our house. So Paul begins our passage on generosity in verse 6 by using this analogy of a farmer sowing seed. And Paul starts, he goes, here's the point. That's, there's every time Paul's saying, listen up, it's right there, right? Here's the point. He's waving his arms. Listen up, church. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And Paul, he's suggesting there's two ways that a farmer can sow seed. The first is that a farmer can carefully place each seed in a furrow as if it's the most precious seed in the world. Here's a seed. Here's another seed. I need to be careful with this seed. And as a result, the harvest will not be much. The other way a farmer can sow seed is by 
striding long steps across the land, reaching down into his bag or her bag of abundant seed and throwing it freely and widely across the tilled ground. And when the springtime comes, the harvest will be bountiful. See, Paul is telling us that if we live with a scarcity mindset, then when we give, if we give, it will be restricted, obligatory. And what will be reaped is minimal. But if we live with an abundance mindset, then when we give, we'll give freely. And as verse 7 says, we will give cheerfully. And what will be reaped is bountiful. Paul is painting a picture of how Christians give. We give freely and cheerfully. Verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek word for cheerful is hilarion, where we get the word hilarious. God in the gospel of grace changes us into hilarious givers, overdo-it givers, people who put the fun back into fundraising. It's how we give, right? It's how we give freely and cheerfully. But most of our passage, Paul is explaining why we give. And that's where I want us to spend most of our time, about, on how, about why we give. I, I think for many Christians, and, I, and this was true for me for a long time, the thing that really, the only thing that really motivated generosity was gratitude. And gratitude is a, is a part of giving. Gratitude does motivate. I'll, I'll mention that in, uh, in my sermon this morning. But Paul's analogy of a farmer is very clear. That we sow in order to reap. We give in order to get. That our generosity is motivated by being greedy. Now I have some of your ears, Right? Hear this, the gospel of Jesus Christ changes what we are greedy for. The gospel changes what the self is interested in. When we are changed by grace, we become greedy for the things of God. The self becomes interested in life with God and in the kingdom of God. And so we sow generously so that we can reap the things of God bountifully. We're going to look at three things from our passage that we reap when we sow generously. The first is that we reap a harvest. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 is a quote from Psalm 112, verse 9. He is distributed, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. This word righteousness in the Bible refers to both God's faithfulness to his promises and to our acts which glorify God. And in both senses, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to have a long-range view in the way they use their money, to look further than just the next five years or even the next 20 years, but rather to give, save, and invest in light of eternity. The Christian life is about so much more than sticking to the budget so that you can save X amount or retire at your ideal age. We are to invest so, so that we can reap a harvest of righteousness. Investing in that which will endure forever. Investing in that which, is a, which has a guaranteed return. The kingdom of God. Now how fun would it be to invest in something that you knew with 100% certainty would yield a great return? If you had a money manager who could see the future, and 20 years ago, they, they would have told you, go all in on Amazon. And how fun to invest knowing Amazon would be what Amazon is. 
Right? God is not against having money. And God's not against investing money. He warns against the love of money and against bad investing. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus speaks against putting our money in things that will not last, on things that moth and rust destroy. As Christians who trust and follow a sovereign and omnipotent God, we really do know what the future holds. That one day, someday, heaven and earth will be one. That the new city will come down and God's kingdom will be on earth as it is in heaven. And it will be a kingdom of righteousness that endures forever and ever. And so we can have some real fun right now investing in what we know with 100% certainty will yield eternal return. We can invest our money in people, in relationships, on things that hold the value of God's kingdom. Things like justice and mercy, love, peace, beauty. Let me suggest an application for, for us in this point. I encourage all of us here to have a plan when it comes to your eternal investment portfolio. If you don't have a plan, that is your plan. Right? Paul tells us, don't give under compulsion, plan and give. And so let me give you three P's to think about with your plan. I took this from somebody else. Three P's. Percentage, priority, and progressive. Percentage, priority, progressive. Percentage, what might be a percentage of your income that you give away? Priority, what certain kingdom things grip your heart? Because the reality is we can't give to everything. There's nothing wrong with prioritizing what is fun and what grips your heart and investing in that. And progressive, what if over time, instead of increasing living expenses, we progressively increased in our generosity? All right, let's have a plan. If we don't have a plan, that is our plan. Here's the second thing we reap when we sow generously. We reap provision. We're not, we're not just reaping a harvest, we're reaping provision. Look at verse 11. Paul says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. But as we give away, God is promising to provide for us in every way. Now, that's, this is not a description of what many television evangelists, prosperity gospel, gospel preachers would say. This is, right, this is not a promise that if you give your money away, God will give you threefold return so that you can go buy the new car you really want. That could happen, but that's not the promise. What Paul is saying is we don't need to live clenched-fisted because God owns everything and he has promised provision. In Matthew 6 again, Jesus says, if God clothes the flowers of the field, Will he not also clothe us? I mean, consider this, church. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God owns all of the tea in China. He owns all of the oil in Saudi Arabia. All the gold in Fort Knox. He owns everything. All of your stuff and mine. And all that we have or ever will have is provision from the Lord. Now, I know some of you want to say, and even I want to say at times, yeah, yeah. But I built this business. I, I studied hard. I worked hard. I saved this money. I made it happen. And yeah, you have. But you were given opportunities. You were given education. You were given your abilities. The Lord has provided. And by the way, you were also born in America during this era of history. If Warren Buffett or LeBron James had been born in 13th century Mongolia... They would not be where they are today, right? God provides everything. 
Our wealth is given to us by the one who owns all things. Here's an application for this. Grow in and practice thankfulness. Right? Gratitude is a part. All is a provision from God. So let's give thanks to him individually. If you, if you have a family, incorporate giving thanks as a family. On the nights that we're able to do dinner in the Mason household, when we can get three boys to settle down for just a little bit, uh, or if I get to put them to bed, I will we'll often ask the question, what, what's something you're thankful for today? And that's not just for my children, it's for me. Because in gratitude, we're reminded that all things are a gift from God. All things are a provision, right? It's empowering to practice gratitude for God is the one who has enriched us in every way. We give and reap provision. Lastly, the third thing that we reap when we sow generously is we reap community. Look at verses 13 to 14. Paul says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you. The generosity of the Corinthians creates deeper relationships with their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Sowing generosity into people catalyzes deeper and more intimate relationships. It bound together a community of Jew and Gentile, rich and poor. It has the power to create togetherness. Generosity reaps beautiful, genuine community. And isn't it so much more fun to enjoy things with other people? I mean, it can be fun to do, do things by yourself, but it's better when it's shared. That's why we repeat jokes with friends or Tell our friends to watch this TV show so that we can talk about it or read this book. If, if you're reading a book, things are better when they're shared. As we are generous toward others, we actually can enjoy money even more because others are enjoying it with us. I heard a story of a boy who really wanted a, a treehouse for Christmas. He begged his mom and dad for this treehouse. Christmas morning rolled around and he woke up and he looked out into his backyard and he didn't see a treehouse. He moped his way downstairs. His, his dad asked him what was wrong. He said, I don't see a treehouse. His dad said, well, your gift, is, it's in the garage. And so the dad followed the boy into the garage and there the boy saw a big pile of lumber. Uh, and, he, and he responded, dad, you got me some wood? I wanted a treehouse. And the dad said, that, that is your treehouse. We're going to build your treehouse together. And the boy is now a grown man with a family of his own. And he says, it is the best gift he's ever received. Getting to build that treehouse with his dad. Because giving creates togetherness. Giving reaps community. So let me give you an application on this point. Give when you give, give with people in mind. Don't just give to give. Give purposefully with a plan and invest in people, and it will catalyze deeper relationship and community. It is good to be greedy for genuine, beautiful community that is centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul ends our passage in verse 15. He says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And he's rooting us as he's been doing the whole letter, rooting us again in the gospel, which is the good news of God giving for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God did not send to collect or to demand. God gives. God is generous. It's who he is. 
And this is central to Christianity, which means generosity is central to the Christian life. Generosity is not something we add onto our lives. And Paul has been clear. It is the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God, this inexpressible gift of Jesus Christ that changes our minds and hearts and that will inevitably make all of us generous. And what is unnatural becomes natural. My prayer in this sermon is is not for you to have like a one-line slogan stick in your head. It's not to guilt any of us. But it truly is, I've been praying all week, that the generosity of God manifested in Jesus Christ, that is seen in the promised kingdom come, that is seen in God's daily provision, that is seen in God's gift of community and togetherness, that this would change our minds and our hearts, that it would reorient us in our world and life view. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once wrote, there are three conversions every Christian must go through. The conversion of the mind, the conversion of the heart, and the conversion of the pocketbook. And the power of this conversion comes only from the grace of God. Through experiencing the generosity of God, and as a result, what is unnatural becomes natural. We become cheerful, hilarious, overdo-it givers. People who put the fun back into fundraising. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would transform us. Lord, we live in a time and culture and society where most of us have been taught and shaped to live tight-fisted, clenched fists, as though all the resources we have at our disposal are because of us. Lord, all things come from you and through you. It is hard living in North America with so much wealth around to truly See, is, see everything coming from you. Uh, but Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to see that you are a generous God. And your grace has been poured out upon us. And it's mostly been seen and evident in the sending and giving of, of Jesus. So that we could receive an eternal kingdom. So that we can receive provision daily. So that we can be a part of a community authentic, genuine community that loves one another. Lord, thank you. Uh, We pray that you would meet us even now as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.